Somewhere in the city, ranking them beetles, getting real sweaty. <laughs> That's about all I can come up with because it's so hot right now. It's so hot. I oh can't think of anything else. I apologize for my the short intro song today. But it's pretty good, I thought. That, that was very good. It was pretty good. Uh, you, you used Maxwell. He's growling in the background. <laughs> I don't think he likes that one. Um, I think he actually loves it. He was like, yes! Oh, cool. Yeah, Thanks, buddy. He's really happy about Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, I loved it, too. That was great. It's not... I sometimes I know what it is, mm-hmm. and today you wouldn't tell Surprise. me. Surprise, gotcha. It's, it's very hot, so that's appropriate. My God, it's hot! Welcome uh, to the dog days of summer, y'all. Um, I don't. I'm not positive what date this episode is airing. I'm sure it's still going to be unbearably hot then, though. Yeah. Welcome to episode 109, everybody, of Ranking the Beatles. I am your host, Jonathan, over here to my left, your middle, depending on what you're listening to. Or maybe she's in the right for you. I don't know. I don't know where she is in your sonic spectrum, but she's always in the middle of my heart. (laughs) It's Julia. Wow, you're on fire today. Thank you. Thank you. How are you today, my dear? Um, I'm good. Are you well rested? Not at all. No, we had a busy weekend. We did. Spent some time in Nashville. Yes. Seeing some live music. Went and saw our our favorites, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. My favorite and your favorite. I like that you're speaking for me. I know, right? Yeah, this is great. (laughs) Um, we got to see our pod pal. Yes, our pod pal, Sean Nelson. Shout out. Shout out to Sean. It's so good to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So things are good. It's just, it's a million degrees. It's probably really hot wherever you are because it's summertime. Unless you're listening to this like eight months later and it's cold then, in which case, brr, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> or you're on the other side of the world where the seasons are different. That is also true. Mm. I feel like the heat has fried my brain today. Yeah, it's fine. So I'm going to do my best, and I apologize for whatever shenanigans I might get up to today. Um, but friends, really, 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 really excited about this week's guest. Do you want to talk about it, Julia? No, I can't. No? I can't. Lawrence, LJ, welcome to Ranking the Beatles, man. A pleasure to get to meet you today. Well... Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing this year? How's everything going for you? Um, it's getting busy. It's been, been a busy year and seems to be getting busier. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was kind of doing like some mental uh, you know, house cleaning recently and listening to a bunch of our older episodes. And it felt like when we started, we always started the show by asking, you know, what are you doing during, uh, during the pandemic and during, during lockdown and everything? And you know, one of the things that I kind of noticed that you do on social media is you do these these tea time live streams where you play on your Facebook. Was that something that started during COVID for you or was that something you've always done? Oh, yeah. No, that was totally a COVID thing. I yeah. mean, within, within a couple of weeks of lockdown, I actually started doing it five days a week. Wow. And it, no, I, I, that's too much. So it, it was for a while. For a solid year, I was doing it three times a week. Wow. Which kept me in shape mm-hmm. um, and really kind of let me dig into some new repertoire and review old repertoire. And, and then I, I figure it probably took me about three, four months to get to the point where I was happy with the sound because, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with streaming media, it's not, that's not been an easy process. Sure. I mean, I've noticed Zoom 
actually have a beta now where you can actually play in real time with other people, which you couldn't do back oh, then. Wow. And then, you know, there were things like people would want to do podcasts using StreamYard, mm-hmm. uh, which is, as a platform is like the worst for music. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work, right? Yeah. The, the kind of thing I do anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was that I, mostly, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. We did a, a Zoom reading of our Brady Bunch musical during lockdown. That, um, you know, that that was an interesting um, process. That's cool. Are you are you doing the music for that? Yeah, Hope and I wrote the score and oh, she wrote a book with a brother. We have right now we're waiting for um, there's a big production company that has it and they're in fundraising mode for a tour. So we'll see. I mean, I never hold my breath with theater. Sure. (laughs) And I'm also the arranger and music supervisor for a a musical called Part of the Plan that is all Dan Fogelberg songs. Oh, cool. Um, That's going to be getting a workshop in London sometime later this year. Well, I'm cool. not going to go out for that because I'm going out in August for um, for various things. Uh, I'm doing some recording at Abbey Road, and I'm, I have a gig in London, and then going up to Liverpool nice. for a couple of Beatle Week Oh, shows. very cool. We've always wanted to go to that. That looks like so much fun. Yeah, I mean, the cavern is, you know, if you've ever been to the cavern, it's, yeah. you know, it's live. Yeah. And there's no air conditioning, except on stage. <laughs> yeah. You know. That's the place to be is on stage. Always. Luckily, when we were there, it was December. It was either late November, early December. Yeah, that wouldn't have been too bad. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, this is fine. I think we we did take our coats off because we were in there and we started dancing and we were like, okay, coats got to come off now. (laughs) (laughs) But it was was not, we were not melting. It was good. (laughs) Now, where in uh, England are you from originally? London. Okay, from London proper. Okay, cool. I grew up in London. Very cool. Uh, And I lived there right through Wings until... Um, I moved to New York January of 81. Okay. As it became obvious that Wings was no longer going to be an entity, I, I had business going on in New York, and I'd, I had planned long-term plans to move there anyway. So mm-hmm. I just took advantage of that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And I'd only been there a, a couple of months when I met Hope, my wife, who became my wife. And mm-hmm. she was from L.A., and I moved to L.A., Oh wow, that's good timing. <laughs> and I've been yeah, and I've been here since you know since October of eighty one. Wow, fantastic! So just a short stint in New York, and then you were like, "I'm just a short stint in New York." Yeah, I just I was there six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if if I can if I can rewind a little bit from there, then um, you know when you know growing up in London, when does the music bug kind of hit you as, as a kid? Where do you where do you enter the picture with with all that? Well, I I was a fan of Cliff Richard and the Shadows. So that would, you know, I mean, Shadows Apache was 1959. But I was still a bit young to really, you know, it wasn't until 63 when um, really Please Please Me was the beginning of that. It's like, okay, there's something happening here. I mean, I was aware of... Um, um, the first single, um, f- uh, what was it? Because um, now I'm going blank. Love Me Do. Um, Love Me Do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was aware of it, but it was funny because in, in the Daily Mirror, which was the paper that 
that my parents read, that they had the charts in there, and it, that got to number 18 on the charts, but there was a misprint, and instead of reading the Beatles, it read the Beaties, <laughs> I, I, which, you know, I just thought that was kind of odd. Um, and I wasn't that impressed with it, but Please Please Me got my attention, as did, you know, the succession of singles with um, From Me to You, She Loves You, especially She Loves You, because that was the summer of 1963. Mm -hmm. So I'm 10 years old and, you know, that's all over the radio. And then um, I, my 11th birthday was in November, a well, week before was when they did the Royal Command performance, the Rattle Your Jewelry uh, one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I wanted to play guitar. I want, really wanted a guitar, but my dad wanted me to play the saxophone. And um, when I started in high school a few months earlier, um, I, I'd said, okay, I'll learn clarinet, but I made sure my name was at the bottom of the list for clarinet. <laughs> so they ran out before they got to me. And then I think the Beatles playing for royalty just kind of, that made them kosher. You know, they were not, it was no longer a hooligan thing. Mm. And I woke up on my 11th birthday and there was a guitar and I just never put it down. Yeah. Were your parents so, encouraging? 16 years later. They were encouraging up to a point. Sure. You know, the fact is that I, that was something that kept me occupied. Mm -hmm. So the, up to a point, they were, but, you know, I, there were moments. I mean, the, I remember my dad turning off the TV when Paul Butterfield band was on, um, I think it was Ready, Steady, Go, um, with, with Mike Bloomfield playing guitar. And it was like I was glued to the TV and my dad turned it off because, you know, it was a little too hooligan for him. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> But, but it got to the point, by the time I was 13, there was a local band leader that was taking me out playing weddings and stuff. And I, So I, I learned a lot on the bandstand. Um, but when I first started, my dad took me to see a friend of his who was a, a, a semi-professional guitar player. And, and I learned a few things there. I mean, he showed me an F major 7 chord, which was just the most gorgeous thing I'd ever heard. You know, like a... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I mean, when you're first starting, you hear that. Or you hear these sounds, and it's like, yes, that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Is make that kind of sound on a guitar. And so, also look very still cool. <laughs> still, what I, you know, what part of what motivates me is the, the, this, just the sound of the instrument and mm -hmm. being able to create things with it that are not necessarily what you normally hear. What was kind of your entree as far as like what you what you were learning? Were you learning the pop songs of the time or were you learning more kind of classical folk songs, things like that? Well, to begin with, you know, also remember 1963 was a peak year for folk. Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, um, you know, Buffy St. Marie, all that stuff was going on. So on one hand, I'm learning some Beatles tunes. There's the stones, there's the animals, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on locally. I mean, you know, in England, in England, because, you know, of course we weren't invaded. We didn't get a British <laughs> invasion. <laughs> the invasion was American folk music. So Bob Dylan in particular, don't think twice, that's all right. You know, that was, it was like, oh, that's cool. How do I play that? Mm. How do I learn to play fingerstyle? Um, and then, but I was also learning standards. Um, I was, I didn't study classical guitar until a few years later when they started offering it in high school. 
and because I wanted to study music and I needed grade level, I needed grade six on an instrument to study music, uh, kind of more advanced music. And so that was, that became a thing where I, I studied classical guitar, but I never really, even though I went on to, to do more on classical guitar, I never considered myself a classical guitar player. My ambition, as soon as I understood that you could make a living as a studio musician, that became my ambition. Mm -hmm. um, and so my goal was to be as versatile as possible. So I was listening to all kinds of music. And I discovered Bach, for example, through, there was a group called The Toys that had a, a song called Lover's Concerto that was based on a Bach piano piece. And it's like, who is this Bach guy? Mm -hmm. you know, and so I got deeper into that. And then realized, listening to Beethoven and starting to kind of pick out what was going on in the orchestra. And, you know, I mean, what Beethoven was doing in his day was kind of like, you know, hard rock yeah. <laughs> in some respects. Yeah. Um, but uh, then I discovered jazz guitar and you know, um uh, the band leader I was working with uh, gave me an album uh, by the um, Candoli brothers, who were a pair of um, studio trumpet players in L.A., and Howard Roberts was a guitar player on the record. So I'd slow the record down to 16 RPM and try and figure out his licks. And then I discovered Django Reinhardt and Barney Kessel and Joe Pass and all of that. And that just became kind of my, um, my buffet of guitar influences, along with the Beatles and along with, you know, then Eric Clapton, you know, Blues Breakers and Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. And, and so there were kind of two parallel tracks for me. One was the acoustic side of things and, and being, you know, really getting intrigued by fingerstyle guitar and ragtime and folk picking, Paul Simon, you know, what he was doing. But then on the other side, the kind of the rock league guitar player thing. And then with kind of jazz in the middle, so um, that just became a path. And then, you know, when, when I graduated from high school and I had been accepted at a music school in Leeds, which was about, you know, two hours north of London. But then when, when I got my A-level results and I, I got an A in music, it was like, wait, wait a minute, why do I need to leave London where I've been paying my dues, even though I didn't know what it meant to pay your dues? <laughs> why do I want to leave London when I've got gigs here and maybe I'll just go study music here. So I applied to London University. Um, I took a gap year. I was a pioneer of the gap year. Nobody was doing that <laughs> in the early 70s. But I did that and I joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. I started doing demo sessions and I just, by the time I graduated from college, I, I was, you know, almost immediately working in the studios. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, uh, and that's I, that. That was where I was until you know Denny Lane recommended me to Paul. Yeah, how did how did that come about? I'm, I was curious about that. Well, I was in the house band on a TV show with David Essex, um, who was a big pop star at the time. This was September 1977. Um, I, I had actually met Paul shortly before that uh, when I was on a session um, at a at CTS Studios in in Wembley. Um, where I was in, in Studio 2 working with um, Herbie Flowers, who's a great bass player. He's, on the, he's the bass player on the Thrillington record, for example. Okay. He played on the T-Rex, some of the T-Rex stuff. And okay. he, he was a friend of Paul's, and we went on our musicians' union break. We went off to the restroom, and there's Paul McCartney zipping up his fly. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, 
a really inauspicious way to meet to meet a beetle. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but then um, not long after that, I'd actually I knew um, Mike McCartney uh, because I'd been doing me transcendental meditation, and in August of of that year, I was on a a TM retreat with Mike. Uh, when he came into the room uh, uh, one morning waving a newspaper declaring that Elvis had died. So wow. I learned that Elvis had died from Mike McCartney. Um, then about a month or so later, I was working on this David Essex show with, um, uh, and, and each week we would have a different musical guest. So, you know, the Twiggy was a guest one week. In fact, there's a version of Send in the Clowns. It's very cute with her and David <laughs> Essex. Where you can hear me doing all the acoustic guitar stuff. You can find it on YouTube. Um, but what, then another week was Ronnie, uh, Ronnie Spector did um, Say Goodbye to Hollywood because that was a current single for her. Mm -hmm. And then Denny Lane came on and did Go Now and I played a guitar solo and he liked what I did. Called the musical director a few days later and said, is he versatile? And then I ran into him with Paul and Linda at Air Studios uh, a few months after that when they were working on, I think it was the Oriental Nightfish, which was an animation that Linda had done the music for. And um, then he introduced me to Paul and Linda properly there. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't get, I, I got the call in April of 78. I was working, actually working in Abbey Road Studio too. And when there was a phone call, I'd ne worked in there a lot, but I'd never been up into the control room. and and and. A phone call was really unusual, you know, because there were no cell phones back then. Mm -hmm. You'd get called when you were on a session, but somehow they tracked me down, and, and it was Paul's office saying, you know, Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday, and oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. <laughs> um, and then I borrowed some Wings LPs from my brother because I didn't have any. <laughs> so I, I just didn't know where to start, so I, you know, I figured, well, let's see, just see what happens. So... Uh, Steve Holly and I went in on on the Monday, and we jammed with with Paul, Linda, and Danny, and we both got offered the gig that day. Wow! Yeah, and and you know, Paul said, "What are you doing the next few years?" And I had to think about it for a nanosecond, yeah. but I had to think about it because I had spent all you know my entire teenage years and beyond establishing myself as a studio musician. Mm -hmm. And I knew working with Paul meant I was going to have to give it all up. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'd seen the progression of different incarnations of Wings. So I knew it wasn't going to be a permanent gig. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know. And did, did, uh, you, did you feel like, did you feel like it was a situation you were going into where you were going to be a collaborator? Or did it feel more like you were going to kind of be feeling a role or just kind of seeing like, just kind of seeing how the role was going to unfold. Yes. <laughs> Fair <laughs> Basically, enough. Basically, who knew? Yeah. Um, you know, at the very least, I knew it was a sideman gig. Mm -hmm. But as it turned out, I mean, Paul really encouraged us to think of ourselves as a band. And um, we, you know, the first thing that happened was we went up to Scotland and, and spent a few weeks just kind of getting to know each other and rehearsing and working stuff out. And then um, went to New York and met with uh, Lee Eastman, Linda's dad, who was at that time still the kind of the, you know, the legal counsel for, for Paul. Um, 
and then came back to Scotland and started working on Back to the Egg. And, and you know, very much kind of collaboratively, you know, was very kind of not necessarily Paul saying, you must play this mm -hmm. as much as giving the space to be creative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was really how it all kind of evolved. Yeah. Do you have any favorite moments from that from that record? Oh, yeah. Because it's such an interesting album. And, you know, it feels like there's so much new information in kind of the zeitgeist and the musical culture at the time. And it all feels like it's kind of making its way into that record. And I've yeah. always kind of wondered, like, what would that lineup have done subsequently after that record? After after you'd gone out and kind of road tested these songs and found your legs as a live band, too, like, what would have been the next step was really interesting to me. Well... I mean, that's kind of, Back to the Egg was very much of its moment in, in time. And, and Chris Thomas had a lot to do with that as a co-producer. I mean, he, he, came, he was coming from doing the Sex Pistols. He went on to do the Pretenders as his next project. You know, Chris was, was part of the, you know, the, the White Album team. I mean, he was George mm -hmm. Martin's assistant. He, you know, was deeply involved in that record. Uh, and so Paul trusted him, you know, because up until then, you know, the, most of the, the Wings stuff had been produced solely by Paul. You know, Ram was the Paul and Linda album. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that Chris kind of, you know, kept uh, a focus, at least to begin with. I mean, it was very much a rock focus because the first, it's funny, the first session I did was actually, we did a demo of a song called Same Time Next Year that was intended for a movie of the same name. As it turned out, Marvin Hamish got the score and wrote the song with Carol Sega. But, but Paul had written a song, and um, we, we cut the track, which was a big ballad. I mean, it was like a My Love kind of thing, and they, you know, they put a 60-piece string orchestra on it. It was like, I'd never played on a demo that was that well-produced. <laughs> Then the next thing we recorded, when we were, first thing we recorded up in Scotland was To You, oh. which was very, you know, very punky and, and you know, very, very not, uh, you know, a romantic ballad. And then, <laughs> you know, To You, Spin It On, Old Siam, Sir, with, and again and again and again. Um, that was in the first batch. And then we, we started on um, Love Awake and Winter Rose, uh, at least Love Awake we did up there. Winter Rose we ended up doing at the castle later. Um, but, you know, to begin with, there was a definite kind of rock thing going on. And then it continued when we did, once we moved to the castle, Lim Castle in September, and we did um, Getting Closer, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, we, de you know, we then would, we demoed the orchestra tunes for the, um, you know, because... Once we moved into Abbey Road in October, the one of the first things we did was do the orchestra session. Um, so it was, you know, there was the rock component was 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 heavily there, and then things kind of softened up a little bit, you know, with the um, with with some of the ballady stuff. But um, uh, um, Arrow Through Me was done in Scotland mm -hmm. also. Um, but the, as to how that would have translated if we had toured with the music first, I don't know that it would have been that different. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know that Paul really had any history of touring with new tunes before they were ever recorded. You know, well, I think that, I apologize. I meant, you know, once once you toured the record and it had been out and then convened for oh, then a what would happen up, next? Where yeah, would sorry, that lineup have I, kind of gone? Was kind of what I was yeah. um, curious about. The well, when we started work on the tug of war material, you know, in the interim, of course, Paul had done McCartney Two, which was kind of a side project. When we w started working on the McCartney Two period material, it was v much poppier, and not it wasn't rock band material. Mm -hmm. And and the way that we were rehearsing it in a rehearsal room, with material that would have been better served being in a studio and and building tracks around it, um, that it the the two the two things didn't really mesh. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that the the kind of what epitomized the difference between the band and where Paul was going as a solo artist was coming up mm -hmm. because you have his McCartney 2 version of it versus the live version of it, which was much more of a rock rock and roll band, a rock dance record. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the last two Wings hits were both dance records. Yeah. Good Night and Coming Up. Mm-hmm. You know, because groove-wise, that was an important factor. Um, but, you know, Paul, things changed really quite remarkably uh, after Japan, not specifically because he'd been in jail there. Mm -hmm. but, but the fact is that as a family, they'd moved out of London. They put the kids in school. They didn't really want to be doing more world tours. Linda was getting tired of the whole process. And, you know, then George Martin got involved wanting to be able to just, instead of it being a Wings record, wanting to cast each song with a different set of musicians as he felt was appropriate. So that was really kind of the point where Wings became not really, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but it wasn't appropriate to where Paul was going. Right. And then besides which they didn't tour again until the late, late 80s. So mm. John was killed so it really was a um it was a different era we were already you know by 1980 we were in the 80s yeah you know and in the 70s so it, you know things had changed yeah. um but we still worked together i mean there were there were wings things that were going on during 1980 and then i went to uh france with paul and linda um, to work on ringo stop and spell the roses album mm. too you know that was july of 1980 yeah um so, uh, and, and even in January of 81, we were in the studio working on the cold cuts stuff of which A Love For You ended up in, what was it, The In-Laws, whatever the movie was that mm -hmm. it ended up in. I had overdubbed some stuff on that. And, and it just kind of, it was, you know, it was an amicable parting, but, you know, I had things I wanted to get done in New York and they were in London and not really going anywhere, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so officially Wings folded on April 27th when Denny left I met Hope on April 28th <laughs> wow so, one, you know, one door closes and a very much bigger door opens for yeah. sure wow, wow. Yeah. you know as you look back kind of a, a, at the period you know pre-Wings uh, you know during Wings post-Wings you know musically how would you what ways would you pinpoint that the Beatles and kind of their their music or their work 
ethic or something like that have kind of like influenced you? Are there things like that that you can kind of go, oh, well, you know, I, I kind of picked up this this idea, this train of thought or this style from? Well, I, I mean, I, I look at the period that I worked with Paul as my master's degree from McCartney University. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I learned about what it meant to be an artist from, from the inside. I also learned a lot about music publishing and, and aspects of the music business that I'd never really learned about directly. Mm -hmm. Because as a studio musician, your relationship you know, is to a lot of the times with a music stand mm -hmm. and with producers. And, uh, but um, it was a remarkable opportunity for me because, uh, and you talk about work ethic, I mean, Paul's work ethic, you know, where that's what he does. You know, if he needs to write a song, he'll sit down at the piano or pick up a guitar and write a song. He wants to get it recorded, he'll be in the studio. You know, when he came back from a weekend in January of 1979, uh, after we had discussed the need for a single, um, on the Friday, he came back on the Monday morning with um, Daytime Nighttime Suffering. And wanted to record it there and then. Now, the problem was we were in the basement of MPL in Replica Studio where he built a replica of Abbey Road 2 so that we could mix because we couldn't get in because Cliff Richard had booked time there and we, would, you know, we, we couldn't get the studio. So we were intending to start mixing the record. So Steve's drum kit got set up in a little kitchenette area. I mean, it was like a home studio. Mm -hmm. And we recorded that, and we also did work on Goodnight Tonight that week. And then we progressed with some overdubs, and we ended up finishing the mixing at Abbey Road when we could get back in, um, including, you know, the, the, we did the Black Dyke Mills Band on Love Awake there, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, just, but, you know, the work ethic of just absolutely, you know, this is what you do. You, you write. You make music, you, and you have somebody. If it's not you taking care of business, yeah. So mm -hmm. that it becomes a, you know, it, it's a, it's an industry, um, and I learned a lot, and I have continued to learn a lot about making records, you know, in that way, and and you know, and I, I'm an analytical listener, you know, I would I would deconstruct stuff that I was hearing on the radio, even when I was like. 12, 13 years old, I'd be listening to what the bass was doing and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, you know, it's always a thrill for me to work with, with studio musicians that have been, you know, been around since that era. I mean, you know, doing a, doing a session with Carol Kay, for example, who of all bass players that I've worked with is the one that probably plays, Paul plays most like, mm -hmm. um, you know, between her and James Jameson. I mean, there were significant influences on his bass playing. Um, but, you know, again, like Paul, she's a guitar player who picked up the bass. You know, Paul was a guitarist who, you know, played bass out of necessity because you know, Stu Sutcliffe decided he didn't want to be in a band anymore. <laughs> and even though, I mean, by all accounts, Stu was a better bass player than people give him credit for. Yeah. That's Much in the same way as Klaus, you know, turned out to be a really fine bass player. Fantastic bass player. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... I think, you know, if I can touch on it, you know, just kind of from a, a musical fan perspective and from a player perspective, some of the guitar work on, on Back to the Egg is some of my favorite stuff in the Wings catalog. 
Um, well, thanks. You know, especially kind of like the little kind of jazzy intro on Baby's Request is like mm-hmm. just beautiful and. Uh, you me know, channeling my inner Bonnie Castle. <laughs> and then on the flip side of it, like on uh, Spinning On, that's like mm-hmm. that's like in your face, like punk with like some kind of like shredding solo in it. And it's killer. Like, I just love those moments. Um, so, you know, I just want to say, like, I love that record. I think it's overdue for, you know, a reassessment. You know, I think it's a you way think? better record than people give it credit for. <laughs> I agree. And it's a way better record than Paul gives it credit for, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. You know, I think that, that Arrow Through Me is one of his best songs of that era. I mean, it's a brilliant sure. song. It's yeah. so great. We were talking about that just a few months ago. Like, it came up and we were both like, man, this song is so good. Well, what, I love, <laughs> what I love about that song is whenever I get into a discussion with, like, a New Orleans musician – and we're talking about the Beatles or McCartney, and we get into the solo era discussion. I ask, have you heard Arrow Through Me? And if they haven't, especially a drummer, I'm like, oh man, if you want to hear like the most grooving thing on a McCartney record, go listen to this track, because it is just a groove the whole way through. Two, yeah, two drum kits, one double speed. Interesting. I didn't know that. Huh. Oh, yeah. And then. And no bass. Yeah. It's just, it's just, basically just the left hand of the Fender Rhodes. Wow. And Paul Simon listened to a playback at Abbey Road and was just amazed at the keyboard sound on that. <laughs> was, was, was that horn line that's in, is that in seven when it flips? Yeah, it's in seven, but the drums stay in four. Was that, was that an intentional thing? I've always wondered if that was intentional. Yeah. Oh, it's like such <laughs> yeah. a cool trick. No, and, but that. Steve was frustrated because the drums come out on the wrong part of the beat, mm-hmm. but. It didn't matter to Paul. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you'll catch up to the one eventually. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my goodness. Um, man, I feel like I could, I could ask you questions about this stuff all day. But we are here with a purpose. We do have a song to talk about this week. And yeah. I'm really excited to talk with you about this one. Because um, this is one that's really getting, you know, it's it's kind of climbed up my list. I didn't, I feel like I used to not love it as much as I maybe love it now. Mm. Which is why it's maybe where it is in the in the ranking. But let's talk about it. Friends, coming in this week at number 107 is I Feel Fine. Baby's good to me, you know she's happy as can be, you know she said so. I'm in love with her and I feel fine Baby says she's mine, you know she tells me all the time You know she said so I'm in love with her and I feel fine I'm so glad that she's my little girl She's so While recording their fourth LP, what would become 1964's Beatles for Sale, the band also found themselves looking for their final single of the year. Initially, Eight Days a Week seemed to be the most obvious contender, and during the session for that song in between takes, John could be heard noodling on a guitar riff he'd been playing recently, borrowed from the Bobby Parker song Watch Your Step. 
Now, John claimed in an interview he'd been trying to work that riff into just about every song on the Beatles for Sale album, <laughs> but just couldn't quite make it work. At some point over the next couple of weeks, though, John turned that riff into a new song, which he initially didn't think was very good, even going so far as that when he introduced it to Ringo, he called it a lousy song. However, once the band picked it up and began to sprinkle their magic on it, I Feel Fine became the obvious choice for the single. So on October 18th, the band undertook a nine-hour session, during which they recorded Kansas City Hey Hey Hey, Mr. Moonlight, I'll Follow the Sun, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Rock and Roll Music, the intro and outro of Eight Days a Week, before turning their attention to I Feel Fine. Now, at some point, when they were recording Eight Days a Week a couple weeks earlier, John was playing his Gibson acoustic through his Vox amp. He had taken the guitar off and leaned it against the amp and hadn't turned the volume down on the guitar. Paul plucked the A string of his bass, and after a second or two, feedback began to emerge from John's amp. Now, by all accounts, this sound pretty much blew everyone's mind. In one interview, Paul likens it to voodoo, and that they all loved it. They immediately asked if they could put that on the record. Now, at the time, EMI had a rule that you could not put feedback on a record as it would confuse the listener and make them think there was a possible problem with their, with their stereo equipment. However, thankfully, the Beatles have George Martin on their side, who understands that sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. So when the band record I Feel Fine, the feedback intro was a rehearsed, intentional part of the song. However, in interviews, the band always claimed that it was a mistake that they decided to leave in so as to not run afoul of the EMI brass. It took eight takes to get a backing track with its landmark introduction, uh, with John adding his lead vocal on top of that, and then doubling it while Paul and, Paul and George add their backing vocals and George overdubs a solo. It was released as a standalone single, backed by She's a Woman, at the end of November, uh, where it landed straight at number one, their sixth consecutive number one that year, selling 800,000 copies in its first five days in the UK alone. It was part of the band's set list from its release until their final tour date in 1967 at San Francisco's Candlestick Park, and in 20, as of 2018, it was the UK's 56th best-selling single of all time. The band also recorded two very early promotional videos for the song later in 1965, one in which they play, oddly enough, among various pieces of gym equipment while Ringo rides an exercise bike. This and is, another, that is so strange. It's so bizarre. <laughs> and another in which they sit on the floor eating fish and chips while half-heartedly miming the song. This particular clip was shelved by Brian Epstein, where apparently it sat in the vault with the title, I Feel Fried. <laughs> <laughs> so why do I have I Feel Fine at 107? You know, as we've been discussing with, with your history, you know, Lawrence, there's a real advantage to having players in a band who have wide, disparate musical abilities and tastes. In some bands, everyone's a rocker and just kind of want to slam through things really straight. You know, in some some cases, everything's really slinky and bluesy and everything swings real hard. In the Beatles case, everyone had these huge libraries of music in their own personal back catalogs, all different styles. They could all draw from at different times. So in I Feel Fine, John takes an early jump blues swing riff, plays it kind of sloppy, while Ringo plays a Latin drum beat that was previously the hallmark of Ray Charles' What I Say, uh, which had been a staple of the band's live set in the Hamburg days. George adds a country-infused lead riff on top of it, so it's really an interesting study in mashing styles together to me. Um, it doesn't groove the same way that Ray Charles's does. It's not as slinky as a blues song, but it's got its own feel. 
Um, lyrically, there's nothing to write home about. It's all just there to kind of serve the music and the melody. But that's where the big win is for this. The melody is such a fun melody to sing. And John and Paul have these great harmonies that they hit all throughout. Uh, you know, And then when you get to the bridge, it really opens up where you get this beautiful soaring melody on the I'm So Glad lyric. Uh, and the song really just takes flight for a moment there. And it's so short that you can't wait for that to come around again once it's gone. Uh, and each part of the song kind of lives by that rule. They're short, sweet little parts, and you want to hear them again as soon as they're done. John, of course, has a fantastic vocal delivery here, just at the peak of his like late 64 cool, brilliant vocal skills. He and Paul sing so well together here. And George adds a sneaky third harmony in the choruses as well, which is really cool. Um, everyone's really pulling together to make something that's got more compositional musical weight than a song that on paper is this simple should bear. Um, because on paper, it's just kind of fluff. Um, but that's also kind of the early brilliant, the, the brilliance of the early Beatles stuff. You know, if I'm deducting anything away from this song to kind of figure out why I have it in, where I do in the list, you know, it's because the lyrics are kind of that paint by numbers, you know, baby love girl lyrics. <laughs> But granted, that's that's kind of all the song needs. They just they don't really do anything. But all in all, it's a great blast of early Beatle fun. It's a total dance number, uh, a really different vibe than I think other bands at the time were able to do well. And it's something that's a total winner for me every time. So that's my two cents on it. Lawrence, I throw it to you, my friend. Well, you know, the Bobby Parker riff. As opposed to... I mean, you can see where it evolved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, this was not the only song that used the Bobby Parker riff as a kickoff right. because um, Zeppelin also borrowed it for Moby Dick. Yep. <laughs> so um, I think that what's interesting also is, I mean, you know, the, the Latin groove um, is on the Bobby Parker record. Mm -hmm. You know, so and there's also like Tequila was another hit that had a similar kind of groove to it. Mm -hmm. So... I think it was, you know, very much kind of, it was part of the, the fabric of, of danceable pop records that was going on, you know, really throughout that era. Um, but, but the Bobby Parker one, I, you know, it's, I, and it's an instrumental too. I mean, it's, but John, I think, you know, really that, that was a big influence on him in terms of, of how, he tried to work that kind of thing in, not just in I Feel Fine. I mean, there's, you know, there's elements that kind of creep in in other ways too, but it's a very guitaristic thing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the feedback, uh, I mean, what a gift. <laughs> um, certainly the first, I mean, I, I'm not sure it was the first record that used feedback, but it was the first pop record mm, yep. that used feedback. I, I'm, I'm sure that Link Ray yeah used it. that makes sense right i know yeah. john definitely like claims it though you know he he tries to stake the oh, yeah. claim but sure <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's interesting because you know what john was playing was the was the j160e which mm. was the you know amplifier the electric acoustic guitar um which is why the feedback happens so readily um but it doesn't sound like an acoustic guitar it sounds like an electric guitar and then you've got george doubling the riff too this was, I think it was the first Beatles single that I bought. Oh, wow. You know, I, I bought the, uh, the With the Beatles album when it came, the day it came out, I bought that. But then 
I think during I don't think I had any any other Beatles singles prior to this one, but but I I remember learning that and she's a woman. Both of those were part of my my twelve year old. Actually, no, I would have been yeah twelve year old repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad for a twelve-year-old to be able to stretch your fingers. To well, play by the time round. I was thirteen, it was Bert Yanch "Needle of Death" was my party piece. <laughs> that was a finger-picking folk thing, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just a, just a very cool record all round. And you know, it's I, I tend to take John's comments with a bit of a grain of salt. I mean, you know, he was very dismissive of Andrew Bird can sing, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, so, uh, is he dismissive I, I, of that song? Oh, yeah. yeah he, he wasn't necessarily a fan, always a fan of his own stuff. I mean, he yeah. was never happy with the way that Strawberry Fields Forever turned out, for example. Oh, which my is gosh. A brilliant song. Buddy, get over it. And a brilliant it. record, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think you know, with John, it's interesting because the kind of the, the, the bluesy, the slinky bluesiness of it, you know, goes well with the fact that even with John's happy songs, there's a, there's a subtext of sadness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Always. And, yeah, because he had a hard life. Help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. The, one of the best examples is just help. Like, I never yeah, even totally. thought about it until we saw yeah. that the documentary, was it? Or was it was it a documentary like the we saw it at the Britannia, the um, the touring years documentary. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, it's just like one of those songs that just exists in the world. It's it's always been there my entire life because I was born in the eighties. <laughs> so I just never thought that hard about it until I watched that documentary and they were like, no, he was like saying like, help, <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, and I was like, oh terrible. my gosh, yeah. what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think it's true with all the Beatles music that you can't take anything for granted mm -mm. because I, I mean I find it impossible to listen to a Beatle record and not hear something new every time, mm -hmm. whether it's a mistake or an edit or some aspect of it that it was like wow I never thought of it like that or I never you know experienced it that way, and you know doing shows as I've done over the last few years where we. We've been doing shows at the Grammy Museum where we do, you know, a whole album. In fact, coming up, we've got one. Um, we're doing Rubber Soul and Band on the Run. I call it the Rubber Band Show. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, and oh, actually, no, that's we're doing those in Northern California. We the next one up is Revolver. We're doing, oh, fun! We're doing the Revolver album, and that's a really interesting album. Mm-hmm on many levels but um but that particular period i think that the 64 period beatles you know the hard days night period and and i was never a huge fan of of beatles for sale i've kind of grown to like it more over the years it's not my favorite album i think rubber soul tends to be my favorite um there's just aspects of that, especially in the, the remix versions where you really start to hear, you know, just this relationship between Paul and Ringo's kick drum mm. is, you know, as a, you know, in my way of deconstructing what I'm listening to, it's just, it's like so cool. Mm -hmm. and, and just sonically, it's, you know, that's, 
and and the fact that they went beyond that to you know when Jeff Emmerich got involved and started engineering and you know where where they went with all this stuff is remarkable and how quickly it got done. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, even Sergeant Pepper was like three months. Yeah, which you know, Tony Bramwell said it just felt like forever. <laughs> the only saving grace was all the Indian food that they would bring in from <laughs> one of the local restaurants. Um, you know, because recording can be a really tedious process, mm -hmm. you know, especially if, you know, things take multiple takes or, you know, it just, it's not always as exciting as you might think it is. But then right. sometimes it get done very quickly, too. Yeah. You know, but... Um, well, especially when you when you stumble upon something that really sparks your excitement like you can you can imagine you know what they all must have felt when that feedback kicked in and that was the first time they heard that and they went oh my god we've got to use that well, like something, something you haven't heard on on another record yeah and that another thing about them was the way in which they would try and make each album sound different mm -hmm. they would use different guitars the fact that they brought in stratocasters for rubber soul which was not a, a voice they they had used previously, um, you know, and and so, you know, and George kind of swapping through guitars. I mean, the the Gretsch, you know, was pretty much done by by the end of Beatles for Sale. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Rubber Soul was Stratocaster's Revolver was his SG, um, you know, and then eventually Les Paul and you know, in fact, this, I mean, the the Strat, the um, Rocky. Kind of kept going mm -hmm. from that point, even if it changed appearance. Yeah, longer sonic blue and right. <laughs> <laughs> all fancy, day glow paints. <laughs> yeah, um, but the 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 intention of moving forward and not trying to not trying to reproduce what they had done before, which mm -hmm. a, a lot of artists do. I mean, they never made another single that sounded like any other single that they did. Yeah. You know, each one was was a, a little three, two and a half, two two minutes, ten seconds with She Loves You, but two and a half minute work of art, you know, and and how it just the teamwork that was involved in that, and and how much George Martin really kind of guided them without forcing them into the kind of box that an A and R man would typically say, well, you know, you had a hit with this, let's do you know that version too. For your next single, it didn't work that way. <clears throat> yeah, and you, you know, and this one's interesting in because, you know, it 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 sounds like other things, but it doesn't sound like any of them exactly. Like it's disparate right. pieces of like, it's got a Latin groove, but it doesn't sound like La Bamba or Tequila necessarily. It it right. sounds like Ray Charles, but it doesn't sound like Ray Charles. Like they've manufactured yeah. their own thing and they use it once and then they move on. Exactly. Because they had, I think one of the things that, that became obvious to me from reading Mark Lewison's Tune In book is how much they were steeped in the sound of records. Mm. The, and the fact that they didn't go to see Buddy Holly when he performed in Liverpool, I found really interesting because they were in love with his records. Oh, wow. You know, and you know, I, I don't know why they didn't go to see him, but but the, the their their appreciation for the sound of the records they were getting, all those American records that were coming into um, to Liverpool, and 
like seeking out B-sides and, and covering girl group songs, mm -hmm. which would not necessarily be a, a first choice for a, a bunch of teenagers or early 20s, you know, musicians wanting to make a name for themselves. But, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're doing Shirelle's songs, they're doing Marvelette's songs, you know. And, and, and also the, the reverence for Smokey Robinson, for example, on John's, John's part, how how much that that really influenced what they were doing whereas paul being far more eclectic in his musical influences um and and you know george just developing as rapidly as he did you know you forget just how accomplished george had to have been to have done some of the sitar stuff that he did mm -hmm. i know in indian musicians to be the core of it but he was still doing the licks yeah not an easy instrument. Hmm. It's always impressed me how much they were just like sponges for art. Yeah. Like mostly music, but other things as well. Um, yeah. But they just wanted to consume and devour everything that they could get their hands on and just put it in their brains and it stayed there and they could just link back to it at any point in time and recall things and sprinkle little bits of things that they had picked up along the way. Like that's such an amazing talent. Like I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning and they just took all of this and put it yeah. in their heads. Solve that problem. <laughs> know what I had for breakfast this morning? Cause I have the same breakfast every day. <laughs> um, but you know, and it's so to your point, 1966, you know, during that revolver era where they were really starting to really become progressive in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Paul's going to Stockhausen concerts. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're wide open to the avant-garde. They're wide open to all this stuff. That, you know, and so working with tape loops was a very, very progressive thing to be doing. I mean, that was coming straight out of electronic music. You know, but in England, you got exposed to it. I mean, if you were a Doctor Who fan, you know, the Doctor Who theme was a product of the, the, the BBC uh, radiophonic workshop, the electronic <laughs> music division. Wow, there. funny. And, and, you know, you, you kind of... But I think that was that's part of being British was that you got exposed to a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. a lot of different things, you know, where their humor coming from the goon show for example, you know, like radio comedy. Um, and English radio being so eclectic that you would hear Louis Armstrong, you know, then you'd hear the Beatles, then you'd hear Ray Conniff, and then you'd hear the Stones. And it was, you know, it was all kind of mixed up. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't until a little bit later that it got stratified into Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3. Then it, originally it was just the light program, mm -hmm. which meant that it wasn't classical. Um, but it was very, you know, it was very influential. And, and I remember lying in bed and I would listen to Radio Luxembourg, which was the radio station that broadcast from the continent where you could hear American Top 40 records. Mm. You know, and then the BBC would play, you know, you'd have jazz, you know, jazz at night. Um, and that was where I first heard Louis Armstrong and Jack Teagarden and people like that. I mean, it was, you know, you, if your ears were open, you could be, you could be very... Influence and of course with the Beatles they were you know, amassing all these 
um, interesting American records. I, I had an interesting experience because you know when when Paul does Black Blackbird live and he plays a little bit of the Bach Beret and says you know that's where that's where Blackbird accompaniment came from, huh. and I was really curious as to how he and George had learned this because George didn't have classical guitar lessons; he'd had lessons from a jazz guitar player, but not classical. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to Mark Lewison and I said, you know, how, do, how, did we, how did this happen? And then I discovered that Chet Atkins had recorded it on a 1957 album called Hi-Fi and Focus. So I got back to Mark and I said, did George have this in his record collection? And he did. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bach to Beatles via Chet Atkins. Wow. And it, most, most roads, you know, in that period went through Chet one way or another. Right. <laughs> A lot of you know a lot of things. He was very influential guitar player yeah. and record. So it's interesting how they how their influences came to them. You know, sure. Getting on a bus and going across Liverpool just to see somebody who knew a chord that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I feel like you know even to this day, Paul still kind of has that sponge like mentality of just soaking in all the music he can get his hands on. He was mm-hmm. just this weekend all over Glastonbury mm-hmm. side stage right. watching all these bands. Did you ever mm-hmm. know, was he kind of still of the same practice when you played with him where just listening and oh, absorbing yeah. and always absorbing. We, we listened to a lot of reggae mm. at the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, Heather was coming in with, um, with punk records and, you know, it was, it was just, a, I mean, always a sponge, always trying to reflect what was going on. But somehow, I mean, in a way, what Back to the Egg represented was a little bit of a precursor to what, what started happening, you know, shortly thereafter in terms of kind of power pop mm. being such a, a strong thing in the 80s, you know, basically an echo of, of Beatlemania, you know, Beatle power pop in, in, in a way. Um, just a little bit ahead of its time in some respects. Yeah. Um, and the fact, you know, it was the curious thing I think is the fact that that Paul moved over to Columbia for Back to the Egg. That was his first Columbia release. Mm-hmm. Having left Capital, left the scene wide open for the knack to oh. be Capital's new, you know, new pop phenomenon. And of course, you know. Oh, uh, my Sharona and old Siamsa sharing a similar kind of riff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beginning um, that, I think, and and Columbia not really knowing, not having the institutional memory that Capital had in terms of promoting Paul, but just expecting him to just sell records because it's Paul, mm-hmm. not realizing that Capital had to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's an automatic thing. Um, I think that, you know, that, and it still sold well. I mean, it was still a successful record, but, you know, in, in the scope of what was going on in like 1977, 78, when you have rumors selling multi-millions and, you know, the fact that Back to the Egg was a platinum album was kind of a disappointment that it wasn't, you know, kind of eight times platinum or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, the reviewers, I think, were not altogether kind to Paul. Yeah. With that, and that kind of, I think, soured him a little bit on the album. Sure. Um, but but the fans love it, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's it does it represents 
I think a nice a nice swan song for Wings. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Julia, what do you think on I Feel Fine? What are your thoughts? Um, what is it about feedback that is just so freaking cool? Like what? <laughs> like it's just cool. Like even they recognize it. Like whoa, that's cool. We're keeping it. It's like it's it's like the sound of science. Like yeah. it's it's electrons moving and generating from you know a magnetic thing into a speaker and making this kind of this unnatural noise. Kind of the sound of chaos. Yeah, which is like very rock and roll. Yeah. Like yeah. It's and then, you know, you get a couple of years later and you've got Jimi Hendrix using it mm-hmm. as a voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Using controlled feedback as a kind of guitar synthesizer effect. Yeah. Um, but it's a very short journey. You know, yeah. you go from 1960, November of 64, whenever October, I think it was recorded, to, you know, two years later and Jimi Hendrix is in London bringing a a whole other level to that particular, um, I, not device, but, you know, but sonic, uh, sonic device. We'll mm-hmm. call it. Yeah. Like yeah. controlling it, making it pers- purposeful, making it part of the song and not just like, oops, this sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Like what a wild transition of two years from going like, you can't put this on records <laughs> to, we're putting this on the records. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah, of it actually. And of course, enjoy. EMI being the kind of institution that it was and is, the fact that you know you had to kind of do an end run around the corporate mm-hmm. kind of uh, policies. Mm-hmm. There. Also, very rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the song. I think it's great. I, you know, it's funny. You always say that Ringo sort of is like more of a low key drummer. Like he doesn't normally do more than the song requires kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I don't think that he does more than the song requires, but I feel like there's a lot going on back there with him, Yeah. but it's great. Mm-hmm. Like it's really like makes me want to shimmy when it comes on. Yeah. Like it's just like, you know, Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's really good. I really, really enjoy his drumming on this song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really fun. I'm, I'm kind of sit there with you. Like the, the lyrics are just like they're fine. They are what they are. They're you know your classic. Not talking everything about a girl. is going to be strawberry yeah. fields right. or across just, the universe. <laughs> yeah, your classic talking about a girl song, um, but all just you know everything besides the words is just so great and works together. And it it's all so different, but somehow it works together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how, and I can't <laughs> reconcile it in my brain. <laughs> but it's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. good. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like maybe this one's a, a little bit low. Like, I think I, I would move this. Would this be in the hundreds for, or in the top 100 for you? <sighs> yeah, I feel top like. Top 50, top 75 um, maybe? I'm, I'm going to say definitely top 100. Yeah. Don't know if I would go to top 50. Yeah. So like somewhere, where do you have it? 109? Uh, 107. 107, Yeah. So I, I feel like you're a little bit low because it's kind of we're sitting in that like middle territory of like sure. stuff that's good, but not quite great. But I, I feel like this is a little bit closer to great than you have it. OK. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, if, if you were undertaking the ridiculous <laughs> task of ranking the songs of the Beatles, would this be in this ballpark for you? Would it be higher, lower? I would put it in the top hundred, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's hard without 
you know, I mean, you've gone into it on a fairly granular level for me. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, and you know, when when I get asked my what my favorite Beatles song, it's going to change from day to day. Mm-hmm. Good, because I'm going to ask you that in about five minutes. Yeah, no, no, I, I, and to be honest, I really can't give you an answer. Yeah, we I usually know which do. one I, I we usually I, do one that I really enjoy playing. My arrangement of is Strawberry Fields. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, because I think that compositionally, it's just so. It's so unique. It is. Um, and that, that's true. I mean, with a lot of John's stuff, when you really strip it down, I Am the Walrus is, is pretty killer, too. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that, you know, it's, I mean, Hope's favorite Beatles song is Here Comes the Sun. Mm-hmm. You know, but for me, I mean, it's a lovely song, but um, I think of George's stuff, I think something is is a, a really interesting record mm-hmm. yeah. as well as being a song. Um, it's just, but you know, it's going to change from day to day. I, yeah. You know, so it's like, I just don't, it's not like I can say, oh yeah, it's, it's Hey Jude or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Jude's a great record, but not necessarily my favorite. Yeah. You know, so yeah, too tricky. Fair enough. It is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I feel like we've got a good assessment on this track. Yes. I feel like we've put it at a good spot. Maybe I might bump it a little bit higher into the one into the top one hundred when we do the great re-ranking at some point down the, the line. Re-ranking. That, my my idea is that as I get closer to the end of this project, because the list is done, I've done the list, it's it's locked in concrete, and then mm-hmm. as I've gone through the show, there have been times where I've as I've talked to the guest about the song and you know gone back and forth, I've kind of realized well maybe I should have had this higher. Like maybe this is a better song than I thought it was. Maybe just that day I just my brain was in a different place and I didn't connect to it. Um, so I think at one point I will maybe reshuffle the deck at some point, or at least kind of just put like a uh, a postscript on some things. But that's yeah, ways I think, away. I, I think that that one really gets into kind of um, quantum territory when the idea of taking 180 songs and somehow squeezing them into a top 20 (laughs) the reality is that any one of the Beatles songs could be a top 20 song yeah if you really if you really put your mind to it oh for sure for sure well before we wrap for the evening I really appreciate you giving us the time that you had this evening Um, I know we talked about doing some rapid fire questions that are never truly rapid fire um, and we've kind of touched on the first one, which is your favorite Beatles song. And you mentioned that it changes all the time. Um, so obviously you've got your favorite version of, or your favorite version of the ones that you do is your, your cover of Strawberry Fields. But if you had to pick your favorite song today, because you said it changes daily, what's your song for the day? Song for the day? While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Mm. Love it. Love it. Do you yeah. have a least favorite Beatles song? Or you're just you know my name. You know my name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I kind of adore that song, and it hasn't come up yet on the podcast because I really, really like uh-huh. it. So take that as you will. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite Beatles album? Probably Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul. Yeah. 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 You you'd mentioned that you're going to be doing Revolver in its entirety, um, mm-hmm. and so I have a Beatles cover band that I play with, and we're starting to do to do kind of anniversary themed shows this year as we hit 60th anniversaries of all these kind of right. landmark albums and times. And I'm already thinking 
three years ahead on Revolver going, how are we going to do Tomorrow Never Knows? Mm. Have you have you figured out how you how y'all are going to approach well, that? You know, Jeff Allen Ross is the band leader on, on these things. So he's got a lot of that stuff down. OK. And, and when you know, we, we don't necessarily do exact uh, versions. I mean, John Jorgensen's playing with us and oh. he has. I thought that I was going to have to learn, uh, pull out my sitar for, um, for um, Love You Too, but, um, but John has his own way of doing it. Oh, that's amazing. So, you know, so I, but Tomorrow Never Knows, I mean, the, the drone aspect of it is, you know, and, and, and Jeff has, you know, the, the loops on programs. So. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll do a a, a, a semi realistic version of it. Yeah, I'm sure. Fantastic. Yeah. That's fair. But we've done Sergeant <laughs> Pepper. We've done Revolver. We've done um, uh, Rubber Soul. We did Hard Day's Night. Um, what else? Oh, um, Let It Be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've done a bunch of them. Um, and. It's always fun. I mean, for me, it's just, it's, it's kind of, you know, Jimi Hendrix used to refer to what he did as electric church music. Mm. <laughs> and, and I definitely, I think, you know, it's good for one's musical soul to kind of worship at the, the Beatles temple once yeah, in a while. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yes. Um, the last question I have for you is your favorite memory associated with the Beatles. And it can be, you know, something happened and a song was playing, you know, for some of our guests, it's, you know, they met a Beatles somewhere. Obviously you were coworkers with Paul McCartney for a long time. <laughs> so you probably have a lot to choose from. Um, the, the number one memory is not a Paul one, but a George one. Mm. When April of 1986, Hope was nine months pregnant and I was booked to work with George uh, on the Shanghai Surprise soundtrack. And Hope was really excited because George was her favorite Beatle. And, and she was, you know, she was nine months pregnant, but it was, hey, I, you know, I'm going to the studio with George tomorrow. Great. Uh, you know, you can come visit. She went into labor that night. <gasps> so seven o'clock the next morning, it wasn't here comes the son. It was here comes the daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, the studio, I mean, literally was, you know, two miles away from the hospital. So I ran home after the baby was born I, and, you know, everything was settled. I got, grabbed my guitars, went off to Sound City, which is now famous because of the Dave Grohl documentary, mm-hmm. but that's where we were recording. And I got George on the phone with Hope. And he said, you know, when you're ready, bring the baby and come visit. So two days later, Ilse's first outing, our daughter Ilse, first outing was to Village Recorders in West L.A., where George was continuing to work on this music. And he took her out of the baby carrier and he danced around with her in the studio. And then he was saying things to her and then he touched her on the forehead and said something in Sanskrit. And we said, what, what did you say? And he said, well, I was so taken with this young life that I gave her the gift of music. Wow. That was a very special moment. Wow. And so we have our daughter, Elsie, who is a songwriter huh. and a recording artist, was given the gift of music by George. So blessed by a Beatle. That's and gorgeous. if you want to hear what, the, the manifestation of that, 
Her single just came out the other day on Electra Records. It's called No California. You'll see I-L-S-E-Y. You'll find it on YouTube. Find Beautiful. it on all the streaming services. She's signed to Electra Records in the U.S. And in England, she's on Parlophone. Oh, nice. man. Beatles <laughs> record label. How about that? That I, is such a beautiful story. Oh, should, my gosh. Oh. I should hope that, like, Blessed by a Beetle is in her bio. Like, <laughs> that's a quick win right there. Well, she has the gift of music on her wrist in Sanskrit. Oh. Is Amazing. But she's written um, uh, Panic at the Disco, High Hopes, Shawn Mendes, Mercy, um, Miley Cyrus and Mark Ronson, Nothing Breaks Like a Heart, uh, Midnight Sky for Miley. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, uh, her her Spotify written by playlist has over like over 125 songs on it. Oh wow! wow. I wonder a lot, a lot of stuff for famous people. Yeah, I wonder. Do you know if she uh, knows Mike uh, Mike Viola, who works with Panic at the Disco? He he he's, uh, he's sure done a lot does. of writing with them, and I think he was a touring member. He's been on our show a couple times. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. What a small um, world. No, yeah, she's yeah she's she's on her way. Excellent. That's but this is her first solo album. She's had features with other uh, other DJs, like especially with Cascade and um, uh, Robin Schultz, German DJs, had some EDM hits. But this is really, this is what she does for herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to go listen to it. I'm yeah. going to pull that up when we're done while we're making dinner. Super exciting. <laughs> well, what do you have coming up that you'd like to tell our audience about? I know you've, you're doing the live streams. You've got some shows coming up, but what all's going on in your yeah. world? I'm not doing much in the way of live streams because I'm just so busy. Uh, I've got some California shows coming up. I will be in London um, August 23rd. I'm playing a, a, a venue called Piano Smithfield, which is a jazz venue. Um and I'll be in Liverpool. I'm opening for the Fab Four at Philharmonic Hall, which is oh. um, you know 1,700-seat venue. Yeah. And sitting in at the Cavern Club and doing an interview. No, no big stuff mm. there. Um, I wasn't intending to go, but then my schedule kind of worked that it would. I'm just uh, finishing up co-producing a record with an artist named T-Bear, It'll be out on Quarto Valley Records, uh, which is the label that won the Grammy uh, for Edgar Winter's uh, um, blues album that um, in this last go around. Um, and that's, uh, the, I, I did a lot of arranging and playing on that, mm-hmm. good old, old lead guitar stuff. And that's, that's turned out really nicely. Um, uh, got some work coming up, uh, doing some work with Billy J. Kramer. Oh, cool. Um, to be fun, you know, because he's turning 80 wow. this year. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm recording some stuff at Abbey Road for, for some uh, releases of my own, um, doing studio work and just generally staying busy. You Excellent. I'm trying not to overwork. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got, uh, I just finished a... Um, um, I've got a four-track EP that will come out in a couple of months of, of some original fingerstyle pieces. Oh, cool. Awesome. That I'm also publishing transcriptions of because um, I've kind of neglected that part of things for the last few years. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to get that um, get that stuff out. There's, there's um, a YouTube channel, Highlands Jam, 
um, that actually these tunes were recorded for that, and you can find videos of those. It's linked from my Facebook page, my artist page on Facebook. All these things get linked. Yeah. Um, Is that the best place to follow along for you? Yeah, that's my artist page, not my personal page, but my artist page. Okay. Where where stuff gets, um, that's where I post the most. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Excellent. Well, Lawrence, this has been a pleasure. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to chat with us. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's been an honor to chat with you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. Lawrence Juber, everybody. Holy smokes. <laughs> that was uh, that was great. Oh, my gosh, the story about his daughter. Yeah. I was I was going to cry. Like I, I was like <laughs> holding it. I was like, Julie, keep it together. Yeah. Keep it together. Yeah. <laughs> Don't cry on the podcast. That's so lovely. pretty special. Yeah. That's pretty special. So lovely. That would literally be the top of my bio, if not the title of my album. Mm, yes. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Um, yeah. Wow. That, that, I'm just kind of brain. I'm kind of reeling over all the things that we ta- uh, touched on. That's a pretty uh, amazing, uh, pretty good chat. Pretty good chat. Pretty good chat we yep. had. <laughs> yep. Friends. Uh, so, yeah. What do y'all think? about I feel fine at 107 too high too low or just like baby bears porridge are we just right you know um let us know in the comments wherever you check out ranking the beatles if you're looking for us on facebook you can find us over there at ranking the beatles if you're looking for us on twitter you can find us at ranking beatles and if you're looking to follow us on instagram we're over there at ranking the beatles that's right uh be sure to check out rankingthebeatles.com the hub of all things ranking the beatles you can get yourself a poster where you can rank your own beatles you can get yourself a t-shirt get yourself a koozie or whatever someone asked recently what a koozie was i guess they call them something different in other places well, like here's the funny part. A beverage uh, holder. I was like... An insulated beverage holder. Why can't you see a picture of on the website? Because it's not on the website. <laughs> and so I had to source a photo of a koozie to explain what a koozie is. I love that you've been like, you can get your koozies at rankingthebeatles.com. And there's no koozies. Nobody was looking for the koozies so far. So. <laughs> well, someone was. Because they wanted was. to know what it is. I will, get, I will get the koozie added to the website. Yeah, you better. Thought I had that. My bad. But... Uh, you're yeah, slipping. I'm slipping and I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, friends, it's been a pleasure. Hope you've enjoyed it. Please tell a friend also if you're enjoying what we're doing over here. Uh, and leave us a, a review on your podcast provider of choice. Preferably however many the max stars are that you can leave. We would appreciate it. So that's all we got for this week, y'all. I feel like we've given you a lot. Lawrence Juber. Brilliant. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, that's it, guys. Uh, We'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I am Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.